This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I'm delighted today to be joined by Abigail Pogerbin. Abigail is one of the leading Jewish thinkers and leaders in the United States, having been president of Central Synagogue in New York City and the author of the widely regarded book, My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew. And she is a host of the magnificent podcast, Parsha in Progress, where she and an Orthodox rabbi discuss the weekly Torah portion and produce a simply remarkable amount of profound insights in what is usually a nine to 12 minute recording, making it a must listen for all who want to receive wisdom from the Bible in the most efficient possible way. So that's Parsha in Progress, obviously available on where podcasts are everywhere. And I listen to it uh, every week. So Abby, it is such a delight to have you on The Rabbi's Husband. Well, it's so great to be with you, Mark. I, I can't bring myself to call you The Rabbi's Husband, but it's a great title. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's, it's my proudest title. So your chosen passage is uh, Deuteronomy 15.7. So please tell us what is going on in Deuteronomy 15.7 and why it's so uh, significant to you. So this is obviously Moses, not obviously Moses's long speech to his people, knowing that Moses is not going to make it to the promised land, which I think for, for many of us, when we come to the Torah and read it through for the first time, we're like, what are you talking about? He doesn't make it. Even though he obviously was anointed our leader to take us out of Egypt, he doesn't get to kind of close the deal and see the results, the fruits of his labor. So he's not going to go. And basically he's leaving very long instructions for his people as to how not only to build a society, but to be a proud, ethical kind of, uh, again, sort of leaders the light unto the nations. In this section, which is uh, Parshat Re'e, you'll, you'll help my pronunciation, which means see, which I think we can talk about because I think it's very powerful. That's the first word. There's just this particular, this, these two verses that I wanted to zero in on if we could, which is 15, 7, and 8. Should I read them? Please, yes. If, however, there is a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your settlements in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Let me just add to that. I think nine and 10 are also very important. So nine says, beware lest there be a lawless thought in your heart saying the seventh year approaches the remission year and you will look malevolently upon your destitute kinsperson and refuse to give him. Then he may appeal against you to Hashem and there may be a sin upon you. Here's 10. You shall surely give him and let your heart not feel bad when you give him for in return for this matter, Hashem, your God will bless you in all of your deeds and all of your undertaking. So it's a magnificent sequence. So tell us, what does it mean to you? I think, first of all, it is just as clear as can be that we owe something, that we're responsible, and that when you see someone who's in trouble, you have to act. That can sound kind of crunchy and mushy in terms of just kind of our ethical orientation, but to me, it is bracing and urgent and unequivocal. And so when people talk about Jewish values, which I think sometimes, you know, we use the language so so casually that we don't actually pay attention to where it's rooted. To me, this is one of those verses that should kind of be on our wall or our refrigerator. Like if someone is needy, you have something 
to do. You have to respond. And particularly now, the reason why I wanted, I think, to talk about this verse above any other is that I think we're in a moment that's very difficult where there is so much need in this country, in the world. We are really seeing people in trouble, many thousands and millions who never were. When you look at those food bank lines, you know, you don't have to play the violins for it. These are people who were working. These are people who are ready to work, who are unable to work, who said, I never imagined I would need to stand on a food line for six hours, eight hours to get some groceries for my family. So I feel like this is, in a sense, a call to us right now. And I say that it's difficult because it's not ending, not quickly, not easily. And I think our tradition is very powerful here in saying kind of, you know, it's not that you give once. It's as long as their need, something's asked of you every day. Exactly. And one of the very interesting things about this passage here in 15.7, it says, you shall not harden your heart. And then it says, and you shall not close your hands. So many people say, is Judaism a religion of action? And the answer is, of course it is. But Judaism also seeks the heart. And the heart comes first here. In Pirkei Avot, which I was reading just in preparation for our conversation, there are these categories of what they call duties of the heart. And that, that's exactly what you're describing. It's, it's not emotional so much. I mean, I think that we, we've seen, even though uh, the Jews cry a lot, and kashrai a lot, kashrai, I guess, is the, is the Yiddish. We, we are emotional on some level, but, but our Torah, I think, in, is sometimes, it's, it's, not, it's almost bloodless in its directive. It doesn't mean it has no compassion. Is not necessarily an emotion. It is a requirement, and I think that's a different that's a different perspective. And to me, it's one that sometimes we don't pay close enough attention to. Something is demanded of us, and particularly in our comfort. You raised, by the way, the sense that people can resist this, and I think many do. I, you know, I'm not going to exclude myself from it. We sometimes look at people who are in need and say, "Have you done everything you could to get a job to work?" to build, you know, like if you build it, you know, you should build it. And what these verses are also telling us is that it's not, you know, it's a shame on us for in in any way saying, conferring some irresponsibility or some laziness or any kind of deficiency on the part of the person in need. And perhaps that's why it opens with you shall not harden your heart because the opposite would be you must soften your heart. So the first thing we have to do is not harden the heart, soften the heart, and then open up our hand to our destitute kinsperson. And I think then also part of what this virus has shown, which I know is a cliche by now, when we talk about being all of us God's children, which is very much a theme during Moses' speech, it is just Jews, right? We are supposed to help anyone we see who is struggling. And I think sometimes it's much more tempting to just look in our own home, right? Our own family. I mean, I, I understand that impulse, but I feel like this is pushing us to look beyond our Jewish kinsmen or kinsfolk. Exactly. And, and too often when people see, say charity begins at home, what they really mean is charity ends at home. Completely true. You know, when I was doing my, uh, it was very nice to call out my uh, podcast, Parsha in Progress, with Rabbi Dove Linzer. But one of our most memorable exchanges was about the stranger. And I was stunned when he said that the traditional reading of Gare, the stranger, is the convert. It is not the non-Jew. It is still a Jew but it is the convert who kind of was outside the house and, and came into the house, joined the family. And I said, are you basically saying that we talk about welcoming the stranger and loving the stranger, that it's still a Jew? You know, I thought that we were being pushed to look beyond our own family. I, I think on that, you're right. I mean, in Pesach sequence, it talks about us leaving with the mixed multitudes who were clearly never Jewish. They were our, our Gentile friends and allies to whom we had all these obligations and responsibilities. 
No, I think what is so important in this in this sequence here in Deuteronomy is this, I believe, is the only guarantee in the Torah, which is what it's saying is if you give to the destitute person among you, then we go to 10, you shall surely give them and let not your heart feel bad for Hashem will bless you in all of your undertakings. And a blessing in the Torah is always an expression of material increase. In other words, what it's saying is here's the deal. If you give to charity, you will be materially blessed. And I think back to what our mutual friend, uh, David Wolpe once said, where he said, you know, in my 40 years of being a rabbi, nobody has ever come into my chambers and said, rabbi, I'm suffering financial difficulties because I gave too much to charity. Exactly. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned the blessings because I was looking at um, tractate Baba Batra 9b8. It says, Rabbi Yitzhak says, anyone who gives a peruta to a poor person receives six blessings. And whoever consoles him with words of comfort and encouragement receives 11 blessings. This idea that you would even get more if you are kind of compassionate and, you know, the, this idea of encouragement, like that word. I think right now we underestimate the power of encouragement. We underestimate the power of comfort. And what does it mean to kind of wake up in our own lives and say, how can I give comfort today? How can I give encouragement today? Part of it is to open our wallets. Part of it is, as you said, to open our hearts. And that the title of this Parsha, Rehe, am I pronouncing that correctly, which means see? I think so, yes. That to me is also so urgent. See, what does that mean? We should be looking at each other. We should be looking at the person who is close by in trouble. And many of us have neighbors and fellow congregants and even family members who are in trouble. But then look across the ocean at who's in trouble. This idea of being interconnected is sometimes a challenging idea, but this virus has brought it home. That's right. And what's so interesting about the passage from the Talmud you just read is that both the material gifts and the blessings are required. In other words, it doesn't say you can do one or the other. It says you have to do them both. I mean, another problem would be somebody who only offered words of support. Well, the person on the food line, the words of support may be nice, but that person needs dinner and lunch and whatever else. Can't eat those. It's like, it's like thoughts and prayers. You know, people are so tired of thoughts and prayers. Not to throw too much Talmud at you, but there was one other tractate that just resonated with me on this, on this Parsha. And it basically suggests that, you know, there but for the grace of God. It could be you, Mark. It could be me. That's on that food bank line. And it says here, a person should always request divine mercy with regard to this condition of poverty. For if he does not come to a state of poverty, his son will. And if his son does not come to such a state, his grandson will. That to me is just, it's in a way haunting. This idea that at some point, someone very close to us, someone connected to us, someone related to us could be in this state of strain and need and want. And don't think this is something beyond you that doesn't touch you. No. And I think what that passage is telling us is that it's in your enlightened self-interest or maybe just your self-interest to be generous with the poor, because at some point, the people closest to you are going to, to need that attitude for their benefit. But what's so interesting here and kind of this is the divine deal. This is the, the deal of the Bible. If you give to charity, you will become richer. It's really that simple a deal is that what it's saying is, and this gets back to what David Wolpe's kind of uh, experience demonstrated, which is that no one ever regrets giving to charity. Charity is not even a Jewish word. It's terrible. It's not a Jewish word. All. No one ever regrets giving to help the poor. No one ever regrets it. No one ever turned 85 and said, my only regret was that I gave too much in support of the poor. So therefore, if you know you won't regret something in the future, there is no reason not to do it now. The only reason not to do something now is that you might regret it in the future. 
the future might be in five minutes or 50 years. And another thing, just to, you know, since we're quoting David Wolpe, and I, I interviewed him for a series I, I wrote for The Forward about God. I talked to, uh, to clergy and scholars about God in the age of a plague, in the moment of a plague. And Rabbi Wolpe was one of my first interviews and my most memorable. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me is that you shouldn't be doing these things as a quid pro quo. That's not how God works. And that's not a God he believes in. So even though, as you said, you, it will redound well for you if you give to the poor and you'll get riches in your own life. What Rabbi Wolpe was saying is you should do it because it's the right thing to do. And ultimately, kind of the universe will reward you. But it isn't about if I do X, then I get Y. And sometimes that's kind of antithetical to the way society has trained us, right? We, we do things because we're going to get something back. I think what is really challenging about this, Parsha, is that you should just do that and keep doing that. You don't just write that check once. You keep paying attention to, you know, now who do I give to today? That's right. Uh, so I, I agree with uh, David's point that there's no quid pro quos in the Bible because if the Bible is full of quid pro quos, then God would be the great ATM machine in the sky. You punch in the right code, you say the right prayers and you get what you want. And therefore, what's the role of faith? You don't have to have any faith when you go to the ATM machine. So he's certainly right there. That being said, it is very interesting that the backstop here is the guarantee. So it certainly opens, as we discussed, by saying, you shall not harden your heart. The first thing we must do is to develop the habits of the heart. On the other hand, there is the great divine backstop. In other words, I read uh, 1510 as saying, you got to open your heart. But even if you don't, just realize that you're going to get richer if you give to the poor. So you have absolutely no reason not to do it because God has promised you, you're going to get richer if you give to the poor. So that's a biblical claim. And then in come David and said, in 40 years, and, and by the way, I've asked lots of other rabbis as well as pastors. I've told them David's quote, and I've said, uh, in your experience, they would ever come to your chambers as a Christian or a Jewish leader and said, either pastor or rabbi, I'm going through such difficulty because I gave too much in support of the poor. And everyone kind of laughs, says no, <laughs> which kind of proves the Bible's right. But if, and that experience of all the rabbis and pastors I've talked with 1510 about, there must be millions of people that they derivatively minister to. If in this very large data set, no one has ever said that they regret making a gift to the poor, then maybe making gifts to the poor are something that people cannot and do not ever regret. Therefore, we're not doing more of it. It's true. And I think there's been studies, and I wish I had them at my fingertips, that show that in terms of one sense of well-being, you often, it often feel actually most fulfilled, most calm, most confident when you have given, donated, helped another person. So again, this stuff can sound very kind of granola <laughs> and new age, but I think that, that the fact that our tradition in this ancient form has it, you know, right writ large to me is so powerful and it's why it's endured. I mean, look at what Moses has chosen of all lessons. This is one that is front and center. Moses could have felt kind of less generous at the moment where he's being denied the ultimate reward, right? He could be kind of bitter going out saying, I'm actually not going to see, going to taste milk and honey. I'm not getting there. In fact, I'm dying and you guys are going on without me. And instead, what he's saying is pay it forward. That's what I leave, it, leave you with. That's right. And as you, as you said, to open up this conversation, this is Moses's parting gift to us. This is his last speech. These are his final words. And this is what he wants to leave it with, is that there will be destitute people among you. And your obligation is just to help him. He doesn't say ask any questions. He said, just help him. How much? Basically, as much as you can. And if you think you can't do any more, I'm giving you the guarantee that you're just going to become richer to the extent you do it. It's leaving no outs. 
Well, first, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about this awesome sequence. Well, thank you, Mark. You're a good rabbi. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm just the rabbi's <laughs> husband, but I, I'm married to a good rabbi. But thank you. <laughs> so the concluding question always goes from the sacred text of the Bible to a very different text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story in the book. He said, I, I just um, ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So Abby, in all of your years as a Jewish leader, so broadly defined in so many ways, from being an author and a scholar and a communicator and a synagogue president and so many other things, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Well, I'm going to start with the negative, which is that everyone disappoints you. <laughs> That's a great insight. Absolutely. Let's unpack that. Like, what do you mean and what experiences are you thinking about when you reflect on that? I love so many people in my life, in my family, in my friends, but I see that in a way, the more we invest, the more impossible it is to meet your kind of perfect standard or ideal of what that relationship is. And I, I'm not actually someone who needs to spend a huge amount of time with the people I love. I love spending time with them, but it's not about um, necessarily kind of quality time. It's more that there's going to be a moment where someone is disappointed in me in a way that makes me disappointed or where they sort of miss the thing that I needed at that moment. And that's disappointing. And I realize that it's in a way an impossible standard because I, I actually, I think my friends will tell you, I don't think I'm particularly hypersensitive person, but what I've noticed is that I inevitably am going to disappoint my friends and family and they're inevitably going to at some point disappoint me. And that's just a reality that once you accept in a way does not rise to the level of an emergency or a threatened bond. Like we survive it. We survive those moments, but I think sometimes we're raised without the expectation that they'll happen. Well, I think that's very profound. It reminds me of, I believe it was the Baal Shem Tov who said at the beginning of a year, I think it, it maybe it was Rosh Hashanah or Pesach, but it could be anytime we want to have a new beginning. He said, if you want to have a new beginning, do two things. He said, write two lists, write the first list of what different people in your life owe you. And the second list, make a list of all the favors that you've done for other people. Now burn them both. Wow. Love that. I need to do that. Burn them both because that's exactly it. Because that's the only antidote to disappointment. Here's what I owed. Here's what I'm owed. Burn them both. It's a new year. Amazing. Wow. So the second thing that kind of floored me, everyone gets their hurdle. You know, everyone gets their adversity. I used to look at people and imagine that they had the perfect life, the perfect run, every blessing. Even as I feel extraordinarily blessed, I often look over, you know, the grass is always greener. And I've just realized now, partly having had hurdles myself, and also, frankly, as synagogue president, watching 6,000 congregants and knowing kind of behind the scenes how many people have lost their jobs, how many people have kids with anxiety, how many people have someone who committed suicide, how many have a child that, that is sick or divorce or, you know, adultery. Like these things are happening all the time. And often to people that we assume have a blemishless, smooth run. And it's just that kind of compassion or understanding that, that again, behind the facade is often struggle, not constant, sometimes, God forbid, constant, but it just changes your, I think, your outlook as to the person you're in the room with, or frankly, these days on Zoom with. Just assume that that person has a struggle too. Right. So I suppose that's a confirmation of Malru's uh, priest friend's first uh, observation, which is everybody is much less happy than he seems. 
So what's the response to that? To understand that if someone is acting towards one of us in a particular way, the reasons are probably something that we cannot even imagine. Exactly. And I have to say that I learned that a lot from my rabbi, Angela Bookdahl, who often, even when I was president and someone was criticizing a sermon or, or something else that was happening in the synagogue, she would take a step back and say, what else might be going on right now? It's not to psychoanalyze them, but it, it's a discipline to do that. It actually isn't as simple as it seems. You can have the, rea- the pshat reaction. This is what I'm hearing and seeing, and I'm not reacting well to it. Or you can take a step back and say, kind of, what's the underlying motivation here? What else might be going on? Just as you said. And I think that's an orientation that kind of changes us and changes the way we are with each other. Hopefully, maybe changes society. Yeah. But, you know, in, um, Michael Oren's new beautiful book of short stories, uh, The Night Archer, one of the short stories is uh, The Presenting Problem is Never the Problem. Great. Look at all these, these like analogies you have at your fingertips. What the heck? I've just had a lot of great guests on The Rabbi's Husband, including Angela, including Michael, including you. So thank you. Well, Abby, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation and really for doing Parsha uh, in Progress every week as well, which is also such a delight and a pleasure to to listen to uh, every week. It's just such a great way to learn the Parsha to listen to you and Dub in conversation about it. Thank you so much and happy Hanukkah. Thank you. You too. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.